technology as it is configured today, we are still at the foothills of understanding how this is going to drive our future economies. There's still, you know, hundreds of millions of people to come to, to the web. And so, so when we think about healthcare, the future demand on healthcare is going to far outstrip the access to the number of doctors that are out there. So how do we equip people to work at sometimes called the top end of their license to be able to deliver that? And I think digital has an immense role to play there. So I'm hugely excited about being in a place where the tools we build can help build that story. Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management. And there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. And while many of these conversations are recorded remotely, I'm also keen to get out into the world and meet my guests face-to-face where possible. So in some episodes, you'll hear me prowling the corridors of UX conferences in different parts of the globe to get the views of speakers and attendees alike. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Ian Mulvaney, and I am the Chief Technology Officer of the British Medical Journal, which, uh, in spite of its name, is a company that does a whole bunch of services in the service of medical professionals globally. Um, I've been there for about three years. Interestingly, I joined right at the beginning of the pandemic. Tell me, we'll come back to that in a minute. Just tell me a little bit, Ian, about your your kind of career journey, your digital journey to, to where you got to now. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is the kind of thing I could talk about, like ad infinitum. Uh, but it's it's one of those things that I, I, you hear this, it's quite a trite phrase, but our, our lives make sense in retrospect, looking backwards, you know, and this is a really good example of that. And also, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s, grew up in the like 80s, uh, went to university in, in 91. And the kind of career that I have today, one of the other things that's super fascinating me about this career journey and this career path is it didn't exist when when I was kids, and uh, and how I got here then feels a little accidental. But uh, but but I've been really delighted and, and um, uh, amazed at the opportunities that I've had over the last twenty or twenty five years. So it really starts with as a young person being fascinated with science, wanting to pursue that in my studies. Studied physics, then astrophysics at a number of levels. A few years in Edinburgh, leading to starting a PhD in New York at Columbia University. And my topic of choice was statistical cosmology. Now, I dropped out of the PhD program for a number of reasons. And there's a big thing in academia that if you leave academia, you're kind of seen as a failure from within academia. And it took me a bit of time to get over that. But I thought to myself at one point, look, is there a way that I can can contribute to the research enterprise without necessarily needing to be a researcher. So I applied for a couple of roles, all from one issue of, of New Scientist. And one of the jobs that I applied for and they got an interview for was working in, in production and copy editing uh, for a scientific publisher, Springer, based in Heidelberg. And I had to manage folks doing the language checking on physics manuscripts, physics books. And we did that for a few years. 
started to get an insight into digital workflow, digital publishing, metadata. Uh, and with my scientific background within Springer, an opportunity came up to be a publishing editor, where now instead of working in the back end on production systems, I was now actually running some of the journals, running some of the books. I was not a very good publishing editor, um, but at the same time, I had this idea. This was circa 2005. It was at the beginning of Web 2.0. And I had this, this vision. As a publisher, we have three really interesting assets. We had the full content, we had access to the audience, and we had direct access to the authors. Uh, and most of the business model in publishing back then was just a pure content play. Right? Basically, produce lots of content, be a content provider, be a content supplier. And I thought, well, with these three assets, couldn't we think about creating services that could actually enhance the research ecosystem? And in about 2006, I came up with some ideas. They didn't really get traction within the company, but there was another company in the ecosystem in the space that was doing something really interesting at the time, Nature Publishing Group. They had a product manager role. That was still fairly new at that time. I applied for that with the idea that I almost certainly wasn't going to get that job because I didn't have any of those skills. But when, when I didn't get that role, I would politely ask, what are my skills gaps? And my plan was then to go away and fill myself in with those skills. But I got the job, moved to London, first digital product role. Uh, I didn't know anything about product management. I bought a book on the flight on the way over to try and read about it so that when I landed, oh, yeah. I'd kind of figure out what I was doing. And it was a book by Scott Birkin called Making Things Happen, one of the classic texts in the field. Um, and that kind of unlocked a whole bunch of opportunity in London at the time. There were a lot of startups working in the space. Uh, there are a lot of academic publishers based in London. I've been in L London ever since. And that first project role where I was working on tools like um, uh, um, social bookmarking sites for scientists, social network for scientists, trying to run conferences in Second Life. Um, we had a team doing podcasts that I wasn't involved in, but it was the first scholarly publisher to run po a podcast network. Um, uh, led me to being approached by a startup called Mendeley. I joined them as head of product. Uh, I did that for a few years. Um, and then I joined a new publisher based out of Cambridge as head of technology. Um, I helped them launch their, their, their publishing platform to market. Um, joined as employee kind of number six. Uh, uh, was there for about four years. Uh, it's, a, it's a journal that now competes with Nature, Cell and Science in terms of reputation and brand. Then I needed to move back to London because uh, we were about to have our second child and needed to be able to do that to support the family. Got a role as um, head of product innovation for another publisher called Sage Publishing. Um, and then after a few years, uh, this role at CTO at BMJ came up and someone suggested I apply for it. And, and very thankfully, I, I got that role. So the way, I kind of, the way it kind of makes sense to me looking backwards is the thing that fascinates me is how do we make use of technology in service of the research enterprise. And all of my roles, they've either flipped from being more product focused or more tech focused, but that's been the unifying thread. And in different places, I've had to do product dis discovery from the ground up through to managing existing products through now to thinking about the whole product portfolio and what it takes to make decisions between buy, build, partner in the context of an organization that's going after some level of growth. That's, that's kind of my career, and it's been shocking to me, really. You know, like shocking, <laughs> surprising, delightful, you know, yeah. That's, that's, that's it. That's the potted history. 
that's the part of history. What a fascinating yeah. journey. And the, um, the, a couple of things to pick up there. One is you talked about moving kind of the failure perception of moving out of academia. Now, I was yeah. at Kai recently in Hamburg and talking to lots of academics. Some of them are kind of early year academics. And some of the conversations I had that came up, the kind of movement between private sector, public sector, or kind of, you know, university research. And it wasn't always, you know, out of universities into the private sector. Some individuals had actually gone the other way. And some had kind of mm-hmm. zigzagged across, if you like, in their careers. Yeah. I'm just interested to kind of hear more about your view on that and, and why there is this kind of really strict divide between the two, or used to be. I think it comes down to the nature of the culture for doing research. I've just been reading this amazing book by Michael Strevens called The Knowledge Machine. And in order to do research and to do science, you have to commit to a lot of very extreme behaviors. You have to go after these hyper-detailed research questions, you are in a situation of trying to push knowledge forward in a hypercritical environment. And in order to stay in that environment, there needs to be a very high level of, of uh, associative value in terms of the brand of what you are as a researcher. And so when you move away from that, where you're deriving your value from as a person or in your career or in your activities, when that takes a big shift, that's a big psychological shift. And the, and the academy itself, in order to retain the ability to focus down on those research questions, uh, puts high value and high prestige on the activities that it sees. However, in a global context, in a societal context, those are by no means the only activities that create value in our society. Uh, but within the academy, it's very hard sometimes for folk that are in that system to see that. And I think the thing that like got me was... Um, I had been in statistical cosmology, trying to unpick the the large scale macro structure of the universe. Nice big foundational question, <laughs> but it's no. it's it's it, it it's not a it's not one that has a lot of researchers associated with right. it, you know. Um, and there was a moment when I was at Mendeley, and we were you know like getting millions of researchers using our tool uh, on on like monthly active users who were adding. Uh, tens of millions of tags and helping them organize their research process. And I just stood back and I sort of, sort of thought to myself, uh, I'm having impact at scale here. I'm having an mm. impact at scale of the kind that I would never have been able to achieve if I'd stayed within the academy. And then later working for eLife, which was uh, funded by research funders, Howard Hughes Medical Institute primarily and the Wellcome Trust and the Max Planck Institute, I got a much deeper understanding of some of the power, power dynamics, financial dynamics, the pressures that academics are under. Uh, and at that point, you know, I was like, actually, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to make real impact at a broader scale. But it did take a long time to get over that psychological shift, mm. moving out of, out, of, uh, out of the academy in a way. Yeah, for sure. And, and moving from... Uh, the sort of academic research side of things that you've just talked about to the to the user research to the kind of user centered design kind of culture within BMJ. I'm interested to hear more about that and kind of what your view is on you know how how teams are structured, how products and services are built. You know, to what extent is 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 user centricity embedded in that? Well, when I came in, they'd already been managed to go on a journey to get to a really good place, and so. They'd embedded a, a kind of well-understood uh, framework, which is kind of modeled on the double diamond of doing one research loop followed by a second research right. loop. And uh, some of the UX team there led by David and someone we both know very well yeah. had, had done the hard yards of constantly communicating that as a required process inside of the organization. 
and um, everyone had been trained on a on an approach called the pragmatic marketing framework. And, and there are lots of frameworks out there. And I think the value of that was at least it was a common point of reference and a common a common set of of language within the organization. So so folk in the organization are fairly well tuned to the need to test assumptions with the user base. But there's still a reasonably large number of products and a reasonable level of diversity and levels of experience of, of working with those frameworks. So our, some of our individual product teams can iterate on a very short time frame. Uh, they've, they've done um, testing, exploration, feature validation and release on a three to four week cycle, which is really phenomenal. Some of the other products uh, don't have that level of, of frequency of update because of some of the infrastructural, um, um, I, I would say, uh, sort of contingent factors that we have about some of our product suites. Uh, some of the products have a very high bar around patient safety. And so so the, the rate at which we can make modifications there is is mediated by that but overall i'm impressed with with how well product is integrated uh the product thinking mindset is integrated and the ux thinking mindset is integrated with our product roadmap um the one shift that we have been continuing to go on over the last i'd say two two and a half years is bringing that more into the publishing side of the organization and we've recently uh created a role which is sort of like a head of product but for the publishing side that's a growing muscle—not uh, not muscle mass, but like a, a capability that, that that has been growing within within BMJ. I, I mean, there's still the usual things as that you will have within an organization. Occasionally, highest paid person's opinion, and I say that very much as one of the people who, who does that occasionally. And one thing I often say to people in, in meetings is. Yeah, you're coming to me with these topics. My key role is is uh, yeah, I'm responsible and accountable for the technology side, but I have a lot of product background and experience, so I'm going to come up with opinions here. But I'm also not directly connected with our users today, so be very careful with anything I say on that side. Right. No. So you give my opinions of, with a kind of health warning. You're one of the notorious hippos that we talk about so much. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at least I'm a self I'm a self-aware hippo, Mike. I'm a self-aware hippo. That's good because so many hippos are not self-aware. Um yeah. highest paid person in the room, hippo, for, for those who haven't heard the acronym before, but it's uh, it's quite quite useful at some points. Um yeah. tell me more about so kind of the user base that you're you're building product for, kind of who are your users and you know what are the specific use cases? Is it broadly academics working in research fields? Is it is it um you know who who is it? Well, before I do that, let me just step back a bit and, and give you a bit of an overview of the the kind of areas that we generate our revenue from. Okay. And then I'll go from from that picture to talking about the different kinds of of, of customer that we serve. Um, and then on that, I'll, I'll I'll make a few reflections about the many different needs that those very diverse kinds of customers have. So we're a scholarly publisher, which means. We do the process of publishing peer-reviewed primary research. And we have a journal, which is called The BMJ, which is one of the top four journals for publishing research in in medical research in the world globally. Uh, but the BMJ also has a investigative journalism unit. It also talks about news and views that are of general interest to clinicians. Um, and then we have our kind of 60-odd primary research journals, which are, are titles like like GUT uh, or uh, the Journal of Sports Medicine 
or BMJ Innovations, which looks at innovations in healthcare. That's sort of one core part, publishing. Another area that we've invested in heavily over the last couple of years is what's clinical decision. It's called clinical decision support. You're a clinician in the hospital and you need to rapidly look up something to tell you if the, the patient as presenting to you is likely to be suffering from the kind of cause that you think they might be. And if so, what is the right treatment to give them? That's a very different environment from the research environment where people might be reading primary research. And that's particularly critical because it, any advice that goes into that product needs to be aware of clinical guidelines, both locally and globally. And those guidelines can change. And once they change, it's really important for the data in there to be updated to make sure that there are no patient safety issues. So it's more a kind of just-in-time solution, if you like, where you're, you're kind of yeah, actually requiring much. accurate, up-to-date information provided to you at that point. Yeah, and and make it easy to browse and people will be interacting with it in the moment and can right. they get to the point of information that they really need in that moment. Other kinds of customers that we have, we run events. Uh, we, we work in partnership with uh, health bodies, health authorities, trying to help drive agenda for change that they're interested in. Uh, and then we also have uh, our advertisers as customer uh, and customers including pharma uh, and um, we also offer services for medical professionals around finding jobs uh, for, for doctors, for nurses, it, with our jobs board. And so each of those have different types of customers. The one thing that brings uh, a kind of consistency to that customer base, though, is it's all connected to healthcare professionals. And our mission is to make the world a healthier place. And so we think about our mission in terms of how can we create better evidence, better systems, um, and uh, um, better decisions? Uh, and, and what are the, the products that we're doing that we can evidence those kinds of changes of behavior in through how people interact with our products? That's difficult, though, but that's how we try and set ourselves up to, to see whether we are, we are working towards our mission or not. So in terms of the design and development process of the different products you're 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 offering to serve those different user groups i guess you're not sort of down in the weeds with that day today but in, you know how how and as far as you know do the do the ux teams go about that you know testing what they're building iterating that pushing it live prototyping it etc the, there is a lot of user testing that goes on on a regular basis with our, our main products. Uh, they bring in cohorts of, of, of uh, user groups to test with. Uh, we're using online surveys. We're looking at the analytics in the product. Those are the kind of main tools that we use. Uh, and we're constantly trying to see how we can increase the, the speed of iteration. I would say our iteration speed is definitely an area that we can improve on, but it's not bad. It's just that's one of those ratchets that you always want to be want to sort of figure out how to improve on. Some of our products have, uh, like, let me th let me put it this way: there there are contingencies when you come into an organization. There will be decisions that have been made in the past that have been made for very good reasons, but because of either organizational change product market change, customer change, or technology change, some of the bets that you made in the past lead you to a place today where you may have more or less flexibility based on the decisions that you've made in the past. And when I look at that in, in a portfolio, I never say, oh, right, this is the fault of that team today. I think, I think teams always make decisions with best intent 
but that means that today across a portfolio some teams find it easier and more flexible to work because of the context they work in and other teams don't and so as a, as a technology leader my role then is to say what are the blockers that are stopping our teams being able to get to uh, faster rate of change or uh, uh, better iteration cycles for, for those kinds of experiments? And what are the kinds of capabilities I need to try to equip the organization with to build towards that in the future? Yeah, so let me give you one very, very, very clear example. Um, the front end of the BMJ, kind of a landing page on, our, on, our, on, on the web, a number of years ago, we made the decision to build that in Drupal 7. What that gave us at the time was co-development capability with the hosting partner that we were working with. And that allowed us flexibility, customizability. But over time, that Drupal 7 layer just became harder to work with. And so iteration, the iteration cycle for one small change on that site was anywhere between two to three months to deploy a simple change for a number of reasons, which I'm, which I'm not going to go into now. But we, when I came in, I kind of saw that as a, as a key problem. And one of the team working on it came to me with a proposed idea of what would it look like to move to a headless system. And we prototyped that headless system with um, uh, our, our, our pages that were in response to the COVID pandemic. And we took the iteration time down from once every like two to three months to multiple changes of possible per day. And, and that, that is just, you know, so from the technology perspective, I can then give that team, that product team, the freedom to be able to do much more rapid experimentation. And, and I'm kind of thinking always, you know, how do we do that with our platforms, with our understanding of our audience data, and with the understanding of our core assets and our core data? And how do we move towards a situation where that's much more malleable so that the product teams can experiment better? That's, that was one very good story. We have more work to do as an organization to get to where I want us to get to. But that's a good example. What um, keeps you up at night, Ian, in terms of kind of your role and the direction of travel for the organization in terms of technology? That is such a great question. I worry about the scale of the amount of software that we have built, that we have manifested into existence. I sometimes call it my, my littlest, my estate. And we have, as a medium-sized organization, we have about 400, sorry, 500 folk in BMJ um, with about a tech team of about 30, 35 folk, data team of about 10 folk. We have created more software that we have manifested into existence than we have the 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 resource to to properly manage but we do that with sort of fixed investment and that is probably that, that what's the long-term sustainability of of my my estate and how do i get people working in the areas that have the highest value for our customers going into the future when after a period of time maintaining the estate creates just a level of of maintenance that gives us very little flexibility so, and our CEO talks about this as well. As an organization, we're very ambitious. Lots of people want to take on work. It's like an elastic band. You can stretch it so far, but we often feel that we're right at the end of that stretch. And I, and I think that's a common characteristic of organizations where people are engaged and want to take on projects. So that's probably the thing that, that keeps me up at night the most. The second thing is some technical issues that we have around 
reworking some of our internal infrastructure around authentication, which is really gnarly. But we've we've committed to to taking that on and we're working on it, and that's really good. And then the third thing is, uh, will large language models be an existential threat to our business? <laughs> Yes, and I think you're far from the only CTO who is worrying about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's talk more about that because uh, you know you can't in our world you can't escape from AI chat, chat GPT, large language models, Bard. What what's your kind of what's your view on that? What's how's BMJ kind of meeting those challenges and, and opportunities head on? Yeah. Okay. So I I talked to my board about this a few weeks ago. And I'm going to give you like I'm going to give you two answers to this, Mike. Right. The first is I'm going to tell you what I think these things are and why they're important. And then the second thing is I'm going to tell you I think a reasonably plausible way of thinking about how to think about the potential impact that these have for the kinds of organizations we all work with. So the first answer to this question is what are they? Why, why are large language models interesting? Uh, I think there are a couple of stories that are prevalent out there that we tell ourselves about what these models are. And, and, I, and I, think, I think two of those stories don't hold up for me. One of them is sometimes described as the stochastic parrot story, which is the things just generate next tokens or next words. But I think they do more than that. I've seen enough evidence to see that they are more capable than just being described as simply a stochastic parrot. The second story that's very common is, is oh, this is the, the baby steps towards... Uh, general artificial intelligence, and if we get general artificial intelligence, it's going to kill us all. And and like a, a, an example of that is, if you had a general artificial intelligence and you asked it to cure cancer, maybe it would say, "Oh, cancers only appear in living systems. I'll get rid of all living systems, and then I'll have completed my task." Right? People talk about it in those terms, but I don't think so. I don't, the, the things are uh, applied statistics at scale. There's no intelligence there. There's no real intelligence there. But, what, but if we ask, what is the statistics that they have embedded? They have, they have been able to embed a representation of grammar into a computable environment. And the grammars that we have in our language are deeply connected to our understanding of the world, are shaped by our understanding of the world. And in a way, the grammars we use, how we communicate, how we talk, how we think, how we sense, can be operable in the world. And so I think what we have are systems that now have a suite of skills that we can call on to operate on text or to operate in the world or to operate as interface elements and stitch between systems that you can give them open-ended requests and they can do a good first pass at interpreting intent and then executing intent. We've never had computing systems like that before. And I think that's why they're really interesting. Now, how do I think we should think about them as organizations? Uh, I kind of have this diagram that I put up together for, for the board meeting. And I think about them in terms of how certain are we about stuff that's happening and how potentially disruptive might that stuff be for our organizations? And for the board, I class that into three buckets. First is, how certain are we that people are using these things to generate scholarly-like text, fake research papers, should we say? We are absolutely certain. We know that. We, we know we have cases where we have allowed a few papers to go through peer review, which have been published in that way. Luckily, as BMJ, the, the, the number of incidences of things like that are much lower than other kinds of journals out there, but, but it's happened. Uh, and so we're certain that, that that kind of thing is happening. And there's a whole area of, of concern in scholarly publishing about this activity. It's called paper mill activity. 
justifies its own podcast. You've got these mills which just churn out fake papers, right? However, in terms of disruptiveness, that's happening anyway. Paper mills are happening anyway. It's something we know we have to get on with and deal with. It doesn't represent a step change in the environment for us. So we have to deal with it. We know it, but we know it's happening, certainty. The next area for me is, is how do these tools help us work better ourselves? How, do they, how can they be applied in workflow? How can they augment software delivery? How can they augment thinking about potentially creating synthetic users to speak with? You can do things like this. There, I'm certain there's opportunity, but how we find that opportunity remains uncertain to us yet. We've got to develop pathfinding approaches to find those opportunities within our organizations. But what I like about that domain is it's entirely within our control. We can choose to go and experiment in those areas. We don't know the answers to it yet, so its certainty is kind of in the middle. And we're not quite certain how transformative it will be, but we're certain there'll be some level of transformation there. The area that's way more interesting and way more uncertain is do these represent a step change in how our users and communities will expect to interact with with information the library community is still suffering under the hangover of google search where library patrons don't want to use library discovery systems because they just expect everything to work like google search and it's been the bane of librarians for decades now we have another thing which is even more so but does that mean as, as product people, as technologists, as, as people thinking about, about our businesses, will the user community and our customers suddenly shift dramatically and as a result require us to shift dramatically? That's the area that I think is the highest level of potential disruption and the greatest level of uncertainty that is outside of our control. So that, that's that's kind of my way of thinking about this. And and I suppose from a kind of Turing test point of view, you know, ChatGPT, for example, flies through it, you know, with flying colours because you are, to all intents and purposes, you know, it feels like you're talking to another human being when you're getting kind of you know, yeah. long prose answers, which is kind of exciting and alarming in equal measure. But then, you know, the same people wrung their hands when the printing press came up. People, you know, the similar arguments were the birth of the internet, the birth of yeah. electricity, you name it. It's one of those kind of, Key, key, I suppose, tipping points in, in human development is just it feels perhaps more existential to some people at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I do like that idea that this might be the Gutenberg moment for software development, yeah. for example. But then what does that do? Does that mean that you have fewer software developers? Or do you say that software has been a tightly constrained commodity and now we can give more software to more people and, and actually meet demand? And, and I feel like for, for a mid-sized organization like ours, where we're trying to do a hell of a lot, this opens the door to allowing people who have ambition to get the kind of stuff that we want to get done, done. So that's yeah. kind of the way I think about it. Yeah. How do we do that in a beneficial way for our customers? And how do we do that in a way that we have the right kinds of levels of safety in place when we think about how we work with them and how we deploy them? Because again, we're dealing with patient safety issues uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Just moving on to kind of leadership and your role as a leader, um, you've touched on kind of the teams that report into you and so on. I'm just interested to know from your experience, kind of the process of of recruiting, building, mentoring digital professionals in whatever sort of domain they might sit in, their kind of subject domain expertise. What, what's your what's your view on that? Kind of what's your approach to that? I am on a constant journey on this. It's hard. And I have found 
I've engaged in some some really good coaching in the last year and a half, which has been hugely beneficial to me. And so a lot of it is me trying to understand and recognize some of my own limitations first. So I have these blind spots that I have not really been aware of before. And that, and that coaching has helped uncover some of those blind spots. And so getting to an understanding of where my own blind spots are so that I can become a more expansive and effective leader has been really key for me over the last couple of years. And I can give you a very simple example of that to make that more grounded. I often, when thinking about talking to somebody about something, I'm very empathic. So I often think, oh, if I do this, then they might do that. And then this thing might happen. And then I try to think a few steps ahead. And then when I come to the table, I'm like, well, I'm going to propose this so that I hope that we'll have these kinds of outcomes. But at the beginning of that, there's an assumption going on, which is that I'm assuming I might know how someone might react to something. And and just putting in like a sense check, like, well, what do you think? What's your feeling about this? This is what I want. What do you want? Mm -hmm. Something as simple as that was something that was a blind spot for me. And it sometimes prevented me from from saying some of the things that I wanted out of my out of the people who report into me or 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 the way that I wanted some of our, our things to work. Because I'd be like, well maybe if I say that then they'll think this. And actually, you've got to give people responsibility for their own feelings and their own actions. And you've got to bring as much clarity to the reasons why as a leader you think something needs to happen. And then ask people what they think or you know, give them autonomy. But that was something that was a blind spot for me that I hadn't seen before. In terms of how you grow people, um, I've been mentoring um, a, a young professional in our organization over the last couple of months, and she's she's awesome. She's just like very full of ideas, full of skills, but has a little bit of self-confidence uh, issues. But I can see amazing potential there. And I, I remember reading something once that was very impactful on me. It was, you know, as leaders or mentors or people are in a slightly higher position, one of the most outsized things you can do is allow people to think big tell people that they have great opportunity in front of them raise their own uh ambition because the worst thing that can happen is that they go after that ambition so it's it's way better than them not than not raising that bar for them and it can be as simple as just giving them the right kind of feedback or just asking them to think, well, if you thought that, what, 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 what might it look like if you thought a little, a little bit bigger, you know? We are our own worst enemies, aren't we? And the voices inside our heads yeah. can easily curtail our own potential. I think that's... Yeah. And, and to your first point, it's those kind of Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns. You know, you don't... You, mm -hmm. Your blind spot point, you kind of don't always know where, what, what you don't know or the, where, where your blind spots are few final questions and then we'll wrap up but in terms of kind of the future Ian, where where do you see bmj going as an organization um and where do you see uh, you know your own kind of career going so I'm, I'm not a really big thinker kind of person i'd say uh because i've tried that before and you know <laughs> but 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 if we go back to the beginning i was talking to you about like trying to unlock what are the what are the what, what are the capabilities i believe organizations should have or how do you remove remove blockers so, um, however, we do have people in the organization who are big thinkers. So, again, I'm going to give you two answers to this question. I'm going to give you the big thinking answer that our editor-in-chief has for BMJ, which, I, which is a, a vision that I really like. We've been around since 1840, and uh, we've published um, some of the foundational work on, on how to think about improving healthcare. Um, and we want to make the world a healthier place. And for, for that, our editor-in-chief, Cameron, talks about 
the need for us as an organization to take a, a much greater role around advocacy for the primacy of healthcare in policymaking. And so he often talks about The Economist. If you read any article about The Economist, it doesn't matter whether it's about walking dogs or microchips or conflict in Southeast Asia, almost every article ends with, uh, and of course, creating a free market would be better. That's a punchline in every single thing. And in a way, there's a role for an organization to play the policy advocate to say, anytime you're thinking about funding, fund healthcare outcomes primarily because that will have the best outcomes for society. And in a way, we want to kind of play that advocacy role much, much deeper and much further. And I think we also need uh, to, to be able to understand how we can reach out and help people working in the funding space more than we have in the past. From, from my hat on, I look at the things that we do and the products and services that we do, and I would say they are all centered around brand. It's all BMJ careers, uh, BMJ impact and analytics. We, we put the brand at the center of everything we do, but we have to shift the way we work and we have to shift our information and our digital systems and our data systems to put the customer at the center of everything so that we can understand those customer interactions across our product suites and how we can bring and, and, and utilize information we have across that suite to give a better experience to the customer. That's the, the, the change that I'm trying to lead on in the organization across many of the streams of work that I'm involved in on a day-to-day basis. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. And, and that's a kind of nice way to end in terms of customer centricity, user centricity. How should product teams go about, would you, in your view, ensuring that the, that the user, the customer, is at the front and center of whatever it is they're, they're, they're designing and building? Well, I, I think that product teams themselves find that very easy to do. But at the same time, when you have product teams who have constrained budgets, they will make local optimizations around their product. And at an enterprise level, we have to create the infrastructure to allow the optimizations that are happening at the local level to flow across the rest of the organization. So a very simple example, if you're capturing information about your customer, make sure you're using the same metadata fields in product A as you are in product B. And that requires a little bit of coordination. Uh, and, and so that then allows you to do better reporting across the different products. And, and so it's that kind of, that's kind of at the heart of the digital transformation that we're trying to go on as, 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 a, as an organization. Uh, and so I'm not worried about the product teams in situ at in the individual product level, but how do I give them the space to create things that might in a small way look like a lack of optimization for them over the next product cycle, but that gives them actually, that then opens the door for them understanding their customers in a richer way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's that kind of organizational level cohesion, isn't it? As you're saying, the kind of getting rid of the silos and ensuring that, uh, as you say, metadata is kind of applicable generally and so on. Um, fantastic. So last thing, right, my playing cards, which I forgot to get. So we're going to do the three card challenge. Um, so I've got three playing cards here. And on the back of each, I've written either tool, trend, or technique. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, okay. Tool, trend, or technique. So pick a card. Ace of hearts. The ace of hearts, in is a tool. So what is your preferred tool or a tool that you advocate for or you've seen teams using? Oh, I'm a bit of a, oh, I'm a, bit of a tool, like fanatic, bare notes. So and having everything buckets, if that makes any sense to you. Tell me more. Moving away from directory structures for organizing, organizing thoughts 
to having everything in a system where I can link between ideas and write in one place. And when I open the tool, I just write and I don't have to think about the overhead of creating file names. That has been the consistent story of how I, how I work over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. So you then tag the notes that you're writing so that they're, they're findable. How do you then retrieve that? Yeah. I, I just depend on search for retrieval and it right. shows me the most recent notes I've worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Okay. Jack of, of whatever the black uh, Jack is. Jack of spades is a technique. So what is your, in your work, a technique that you use, you've seen used that you like, or it's kind of resonated. So if I look over my career, the technique around product that I found the most useful is lean canvas. That's been the one that, that has stuck the most. But I'm going to give you a meta answer to that question, which is when we're thinking about product discovery, there's a trade-off between certainty and scope. And so if you do A-B testing, you get high certainty, but you don't have the right context. If you do a landscape analysis mapping, you get the right context, but you have no certainty on your answer. So the, 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 the technique is pick the right technique for the context and level of certainty that you need. That's my go-to answer to that. Like that. And the last one is the queen of diamonds is a trend. So tell me a trend that you've seen, you've liked, maybe you don't like, maybe it's bothering you. So the trend that I worry about most is called enshittification. And so when I came to the web in, in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, we, we thought we were going to create these, these spaces of equal opportunity, uh, community-driven, user-generated content, and remove and erase the need for centralized authorities on the web. And what's happened and transpired is those were not safe spaces for, for diverse participation, and they were not well financed to begin with. And that's led to highly toxic spaces where the drive to finance them is creating terrible user experiences. And so in our own work at BMJ, how do we strike the balance between creating the right value exchanges, which create an organization which can adhere to its mission, but is sustainable and creates real value for, for our customers and being aware of the tension there and, and seeing the web as I saw it naively when I came to it, break apart and disappear around me fills me with some level of sadness. That's a, that's a sobering note to end on. Let me ask you one final question, Ian. What excites you about what you do? What, what get, we, we've talked a bit about kind of your, what keeps you awake at night. Let's flip it on its head. What, what gets you up in the morning? There are two things. The, the, the technology as it is configured today, we are still at the foothills of understanding how this is going to drive our future economies. There's still you know, hundreds of millions of people to come to, to the web. And so, so when we think about healthcare, the future demand on healthcare is going to far outstrip the access to the number of doctors that are out there. So how do we equip people to work at sometimes called the top end of their license to be able to deliver that? And I think digital has an immense role to play there. So I'm hugely excited about being in a place where the tools we build can help build that story. And within BMJ, we've been around for a long time. So we have a lot of legacy systems and a lot of legacy processes. 
and I can see those and there are things that you can easily be deeply dissatisfied with, but that's just to do with, with that sort of context thing I was telling you about. Those were good decisions in the past. It's our job to look at that and figure out how to make them better moving forward. And so I feel as an organization, we have immense potential to do even better than we are now when we can make those systems work better in the context of our customers and, and, and the execution of our vision. And I have a real role to play in making that happen. And that's also really exciting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.